You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we'll be. And uh, I'll start reading in verse 6. And we'll go down through verse 10. It says, And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy, shirt, thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber, give me timber, to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. What a great statement. Verse 9, it says, Then I came to the governors beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Everything's looking great. Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Tonight we're going to be looking and thinking about this subject tonight. um, Guaranteed trouble. There's guaranteed trouble. You can be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Nehemiah is a man who wants to make a difference. I think that's been obvious as we go through his life and start to look at his characteristics. And he's a man who's not content to let somebody else just do the work for him. He wants to get out there and do it himself. We spent the last few weeks looking at how serious he is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And for those of us that have been in the series or been here the last few weeks, we know that, the, that Jerusalem is really in shambles, that, that, that the walls are broken down, Jerusalem is left to itself and unprotected, and the enemies of God had come in and really ransacked the city. And so Nehemiah knows that in order to help Jerusalem, somebody needs to go back and rebuild the walls. That's what he's trying to do. He wants to go back and rebuild the walls. He has a heart for it. And we find out as we go through chapters 1 and 2 that he's the right man for the job. He's depending on the right resources. That is God. He is waiting for the right time, which we're thankful for that example. And he's doing things the right way. And it it seems like everything is going to be smooth. Don't you think if someone is going to do everything the right way, it's just going to be easy? Well, has it ever dawned on you that just because you try to do things the right way... That doesn't mean that it always works out very well. Trying to do things the right way doesn't always mean that things are smooth. As a matter of fact, the more you try to do right, it seems like the more opposition there is. I mean, I was was talking to somebody just this week, and I'm not going to name names because I failed to get permission to use this story. But I was talking to someone... Um, about them trying to get home very quickly. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, it was Miss Olga. So Miss Olga, Brother Juan was telling me this yesterday, and this is a good example. Now he's in trouble. Great. Deflection. Okay. He was telling, she was trying to get to the house pretty quickly yesterday. I hope I got this right. 
And they were trying to get, she was trying to get home and pick everyone up because, and I just want to point this out, I'm great thankful for the example that the Varguses, very often on Saturday afternoons, they come here, they pick up tracks, they pick up a map, and as a family, they go and they invite people to church. And I'm thankful for that example. And we, I love the fact that they do it as a family. I think more families ought to be doing that. Um, so they were trying to do the right thing, right? Well, Miss Olga was trying to get home, and she was trying to get home pretty quickly and, and pick up the family. Um, and on the way home, someone in a vehicle with lights on top saw her moving quickly. I'll let you fill in the gaps here. Brother Juan told me he came out of the house and, and the police officer had pulled her over right in front of the house to add insult to injury. Like she couldn't eat. My wife would try to hide the ticket from me, Miss Olga. She couldn't even do that, okay? It's like right out there in the open. You know, pulled her over for, for speeding and trying to get back here at a certain time to get started on outreach. And you know what dawned on me as Brother Juan was telling me that and and uh, we were praying for the situation and praying for Miss Olga's spirit and um, praying that they would be in the right frame of mind to get out there and invite people to church. You know, I'm kidding about that. But I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, here's the Vargas family trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing and they're, they're trying to do it the right way. They're trying to get out there as a family. They're trying to invite people to church. It's a nice day. There's maps. There's tracks. I mean, there's no reason not to today. And they're trying to do the right thing. And in trying to do the right thing, here comes trouble. Doesn't that kind of describe the way it can be for us sometimes? You've got the good intentions. You've got the, you want to do the right thing. You're trying to get the right thing done. You're working hard. You're being diligent. And, and it seems like as soon as you try to start doing something well or doing something right, the trouble shows up. I mean, here's Nehemiah, and he figures out the that very principle here that he's trying to do the right thing he's trying to do it the right way he comes to the king he asks for the king's blessing he doesn't go outside of his authority uh, he in as in going into the king then he asks if he can leave and have authority to go through all the countries and even have letters to get the timber and and the king amazingly then just says yes everything you need is right here and it may not be so amazing nehemiah has proven himself He's been responsible, he's worked hard, and he's had good character, he's been faithful, and he came prepared. He was humble enough to go through the right channels of authority before moving forward. When a man is willing to go to those lengths, that lengths you would think that everything would just work out. I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to do it the right way. And he, the king's even on board. The king knows Nehemiah, he trusts Nehemiah, and he knows that Nehemiah is going to do what he says. He's, he set him a time. And he knows Nehemiah will be back when he says he's going to be back. I mean, not only then does Artaxerxes then write Nehemiah every letter that he needs to go through, every country he'll be going through, but he even writes him a letter to take to Asaph to get all the building materials that he needs. And not only that, then, um, Artaxerxes is so on board that he gets an army together. And he sends an army with Nehemiah in verse 9. says, the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. I mean, you talk about everything's working out. I mean, it's working out so well. In Nehemiah's own hand, his own testimony there at the end of verse 8, he says, and the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Sometimes we feel that way. You know, everything's going well. It's the good hand of God upon me. 
I've got all the letters. I've got the king's authority. I have an army. I have horsemen. What could go wrong? I'm the right man. It's the right time. I have the right relationship with God. I've got the right authority. I've got all the letters. I've got all the lumber. I've got the king's blessing. He's even pleased to send me. I have an army behind me. I've got behind me. I've got horsemen. I've got lots of help. And on top of it all, the good hand of God's upon me. I mean, everything looks good. Everything's looking up. And it is in that what could be wrong or what could go wrong moment when everything is looking up that you better look around because trouble is coming. I've heard it said that you're either in a trial, you're just coming through a trial, or you will soon be in one. Well, Nehemiah is one of the soon bees because of two bullies named Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat, in verse 10, we see Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat's a governor in Samaria. He's a, from a town in Moab. He's a Moabite, which those are, that's a longtime enemy of the Jews, if you know anything about your Old Testament history. Tobias from the region east of the Jordan River. He's an Ammonite, which that's a longtime enemy of the Jews. No wonder they don't want Nehemiah there. We find out later in the book that both of these men have great influence and authority. They're over certain areas of the country. They were leaders of certain regions. They have control. So, of course, then, if somebody comes into their land, into their territory, and they're trying to restake a claim uh, in Jerusalem, they're not going to be happy about it. And they're not happy. It says they were grieved exceedingly. This is their territory. Somebody's going to come back into our territory and they're going to fortify Jerusalem and they even have the authority of the king. I mean, it's really not like Sanballat and Tobiah. They know they can't really do anything about this because the king has given authority. For them to attack Nehemiah would be like to attack the king. I mean, they've even got an army. It's not like they can really do anything, but they are certainly, though, not happy. They are grieved exceedingly According to verse 10, grieved exceedingly when they hear that a man has come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And here's where we start to see the guaranteed trouble. Because any time, folks, any time an individual wants to give themselves or himself or herself to the work of God, someone is not going to be happy. I was reading this point at this point in the story this week, and I don't know if you're like, like me, but uh, my mind is easily distracted sometimes. And I'm reading through this story, and it, it just came to me as I was reading uh, about this. You know, everything's looking good, and everything's going well. And, and then suddenly I thought of an old Far Side comic. <sighs> yeah, I know. Deep in the study... Spiritual mindset, I'm really, you know, meeting with the Lord, and a Farside comic comes to my mind. Anybody know what Farside comics are? Okay, many of you do. They're written, created by a man named Gary Larson. He's the creative mind behind these comics. I've always found most of the material pretty funny. You know, the cartoon or the comic that he created, it was usually just one image with a single caption, and it doesn't sound all that involved, but when you see them then you realize he has a way of presenting something very funny or very humorously and very succinctly. I mean, just one picture with one caption underneath. And as I was reading the story of Nehemiah, a Farsight comic came to my mind. It's one of my favorite of all time. 
favorites of all time, and it's, it's uh, these two deer, and they're in the woods, and they're just talking, which is naturally deer just talking in the woods. They're talking to each other, and one of them comments about the other's unfortunate birthmark. And rather than describe it to you, I just want to show you tonight. So let's look up here. You got two deer. And one says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Because his birthmark is a target. And everybody knows, you know, that's a terrible birthmark for a deer to have because and there's a lot of hunters out there that are going to miss that very... <laughs> Very much. You know, you say, well, how did you get through a Far Side comic from the book of Nehemiah? I have no idea, okay? It's the new coffee the Steens bought me this week to my office. Well, I'll tell you this, because Hal reminds me of Nehemiah. See, by that I mean, in that moment, he was the man trying to do something for God. He's the man seeking the welfare of the children of God. He's just trying to do right. He just volunteered. He just took it upon himself to do God's work. And suddenly now, there's a big target on him. Because any time that you decide you're going to be the one to get something done for God, be ready. You will find yourself with a target just like Hal. You can go ahead and turn it off. Nobody's going to listen to the rest of the sermon if I... Leave it up there. You know, it's kind of like being the best team. I mean, like being the Cowboys or something like that. Not really. It's like being the best team. Every week you get the other team's best shot, don't you? I mean, when, when, you, when you're the best team out there, then everybody that you play against, they're coming at you with their A game. They're going to come at you as hard as they can. They're going to pull out all the stops. They're going to try all the trick plays. They're going to do what they haven't done before. They're going to send in the twists and, the, and, and kind of the new plays. And they're going to do all the new stuff because you're going to get everybody's best shot when you're the best team. Or it's like being if you, if you are over people at work and you've got a position of authority or leadership, everybody's watching you. Every mistake that you make is magnified. Every move you make is analyzed. It's just the way it works. Anytime you're trying to do something big, people notice. And every time that you try to do something for God, I hope you're ready because you're like Hal and you have, you're a walking target. There's a red dot. It's right in the middle of your forehead. You're being targeted. And I use that silly illustration up there, but we've got to be careful because it's not somebody, it's not a bad marksman out there with the target on you. It starts with Satan. He's targeting you. You're in his sights. And Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, as a, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. You know, he's always looking for the next victim. He's always out, and he's looking for the ones that are out front. He's looking for the ones that are trying to do something for God. And if you're trying to do something for God, Satan is watching you because he hates the work of God. He hates God. He's so full of rage against God that he hates every one of his followers too. He hates it when we try to do something that advances the work of God. He hates you and a roaring lion is nothing to mess around with. Satan's taken down plenty of people who could have done something for the Lord. 
and you can think of them, and I can think of them. And just so I don't go off in a different direction, I'm just going to think of Bible examples. I think about the way that Satan targeted Judas. You know, Judas Iscariot, he started out as one of the twelve. And I wouldn't be surprised if when he started out, he may have even had good intentions. He was just one of the guys, and he's trying to figure it all out. But if you read John's account, it says in John 13 that the devil planted a seed in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Satan was targeting him. He had a target on his back. In John 13, 27, it says he entered Judas. He was out to get him. If you wonder how, if Satan is targeting us to stop the work of God, look at what he, took, what he did to take Judas down. I mean, the most significant work that Christ ever did on this planet was to redeem us, to go to the cross. And Satan was doing everything he could to stop it. And he destroyed Judas in the process because he wanted to put a stop to God's work. I mean, in the end, God took that betrayal and was able to use it uh, to get his plan accomplished, which only the sovereignty of God. But he was able to take that betrayal and turn it into something that helped his overall plan. You know, Satan took Judas out. He didn't care about Judas at all. Judas was destroyed. He was lost in the process. And if Satan could get to someone that close to Jesus, who am I to think that I'm above his schemes? We're not, folks. We're told in 2 Corinthians 2.11 to, to not be ignorant of his devices. Those are his plans, his schemes, his thoughts. Peter said we must be sober, we must be vigilant, we must be calm and clear-minded, and we must be, must be cautiously attentive. And I'm not trying to say that Satan has all power, and I'm not trying to say that Satan beats God or can defeat God, but, if, but sometimes we get to the point where we forget that Satan is a person He's an active enemy of God, and he is looking for his next victim. And if you're trying to do anything for God, you have a target on your back. You've got a red dot on your forehead. Don't think that Satan doesn't know when you're trying to do something for God. Peter said we've got to be sober and vigilant and attentive. It's like a guard who, who's watching with diligence and every noise he hears. His eyes are peeled. He's, he's looking around. He wants to make sure nothing happens. That's how we're supposed to be. And yet, if we, if that's how we should be. But if we were to look at the way that we actually are when it comes to Satan's attacks, most of us are sleeping. Most of us are taking a nap. We're not being very sober. We're not being very vigilant. We're actually open to his devices we leave ourselves open because we're not even thinking about the fact that he's targeting us and if you're trying to do something for god satan has taken notice it's time to watch out just like job think about job here's a man he's just trying to live righteously he was an upright man he was perfect he was doing I mean, not perfect as in sinless but he was complete he was whole he was upright he was doing the right things for god he was a righteous man minding his own business and satan comes along and really destroys his life takes everything that he ever had from him minus his own his his own life god blessed him in return and at the end because of it but Job had a target. And he had a target on his back because he was upright. And Job, Satan came to God and said, well, the only reason he's upright is because you keep blessing him. If you would remove your hand of blessing, he would turn on you. And, and that, from that point on, Satan was out to take him down. 
Satan is targeting you. You know who else is targeting you? The world is targeting you. See, God is the king. He's in control of this planet. He's sovereign. He reigns. But John calls Satan the prince of this world. You know what that means? He's, he has a lot of influence on this planet. And the world thinks and acts like Satan. They're like their father, the devil. They're out there doing uh, what Satan is leading them to do. And the mindset toward God's people from the world is continually more violent and hateful every year. I mean, these are current statistics. Uh, just last year, according to the 2019 World Watch list, over 245 million, and their definition of Christians is probably pretty loose, but in their definition, 245 million Christians were living in places where they experienced high levels of persecution. Over 4,000 Christians in 2018 were killed for their faith. Over 1,800 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Over 3,000 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned last year. You know, everybody talks about enlightenment, and everybody talks about evolution, like evolution evolves us into something better, but we're not getting better. The world is getting progressively worse and violent, and more and more hateful, and more and more antagonistic. I mean, look around in our own country and tell me we're evolving into something better. We're not. And the evidence is showing up in how people treat Christians in this, on this planet. There are people right now, Christians imprisoned right now, waiting to be sentenced to death because they're a Christian in some, in some country over in the Middle East. Countries all around the world, they're being persecuted. The Bible is clear that the default position of the world is against God. The default position of the world is to be at enmity with God, according to James. They're they're enemies of God. Whoever is a friend of the world, the Bible says, and James is an enemy of God. They're at odds with God. And here we are thinking that we're above that and that's not going to happen I mean, I think about Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus Christ didn't paint a picture to the apostles like, oh, this is not going to happen. Y'all don't have anything to worry about. You're going to be fine. No, he said, uh, it's going to happen. You'll be blessed if it happens to you, but here it comes. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he said, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're doing right, not only is Satan targeting you, but the world sees it, and they don't like what they see. They're targeting us. And I'm not trying to make enemies with, those, with the loss, but I'm just telling you, Jesus Christ made it very clear that the world hates him. The world hates Jesus Christ. Christ said in John, and you say, well, that doesn't sound politically correct, or that's not my experience. That's fine. I'm going to give you the words of Jesus Christ, God's Son. When he said in John 15, if the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. He said in verses 19 and 20, because you're not of the world, the world hateth you. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
So we could stand up here and we can say, well, you know, the world doesn't persecute and the world doesn't hate me like it hates Christ. We're enlightened, we're evolving, we're getting better and better. No, Jesus Christ in his own words says, don't be surprised when they hate you, they hated me. You're not above me when they persecute you. Don't be surprised they hate me. They'll hate you too. The world hates Christ because his message goes against their lifestyle. And just like Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, they, they had their own territory. And, if, and they, things were okay until Nehemiah came to try to do a work of God in their territory. And just like those two, as soon as we start invading somebody's territory or their domain, they're not happy. I mean, I think about Paul and, and Silas in Acts 16. They, they met this young lady. She's possessed of a demon. You'll remember the story, I'm sure, in Philippi. And uh, there's a lady, a young lady possessed of a demon. And it says that she brought her masters gr- much gain through a spirit of divination. And I don't know exactly all that that means. But, I would, but what I understand is that means that she had a demon that helped her to act like a psychic. It helped her to act like a fortune teller. So there's this young lady, and she has a demon. She's possessed of a demon. And, and Paul and Silas go into Philippi, and they start preaching. And while they're preaching to her and, and witnessing to her, that demon comes out, and Christ moves in. And everything's great, it seems, except now she can't make any money for her masters anymore. So they bring Paul and Silas, it says, to the magistrates and to the rulers, and they said, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. I mean, they're causing lots of trouble in our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, because we're Romans. And the multitude rises up together against them. And they, it really wasn't about their teaching. It was the fact that they invaded their territory and they affected their pocketbook. The world is probably usually okay with what we believe, but as soon as we start believing it or living it out in their territory, I mean, watch out. That's when, when they took Paul and Silas and they beat them with many stripes, and the story says then later they threw them into that prison, and then Paul and Silas were singing at midnight. I know you know the story. You know, as long as we don't interfere with the world's domain, they're probably fine, but as soon as we do... So what seems opposed to their lifestyle, there's a target. We're how the deer. Because there's a target on us. And here's how the world targets you. Well, persecution. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but also temptations of the flesh. You know, they want you to fail. The world system wants to see you fail. Satan's behind it, and he wants to see you fall. He wants to put things in front of our eyes and in our ears and before our faces that will trip us up. And Satan wants to laugh at our, at our failure. The world is targeting us. We've got to have the armor of God to resist their, their attacks. Satan is targeting us. The world is targeting us. And here's the sad part. Here's the saddest part of all is that many times it's other Christians that are targeting each other too. Carnal and immature Christians, and that can be a tough crowd. It's so sad, but you read Paul's writing and all of his letters, and, and you find out how many of his letters were written to churches with church members that could not get along. It's amazing how Satan and the flesh will target God's people, and then God's people, in response, try to target each other. 
And it's amazing how God's people can become their own worst enemies. You know, as if we don't have enough to fight against. As if we don't have enough to be on guard against. Satan can get his foothold in the door and the world gets their foot in the door. And rather than us being on the same team, fighting against what's out there, we turn against each other. That's, That's the saddest part of all. Sometimes that other Christians can maybe feel convicted if, if their standards are different or sometimes there's a large amount of jealousy among God's people. And I'm not even saying I see those things here. I just know that it happens. And we've got to be on guard. I've seen longtime Christian friends part ways because of how they treated each other's kids. I've seen it. I've watched it. I've seen God's people turn into backbiting and and gossipers, and, and that destroys the unity of a church family. We ought to assume that Satan can impact God's people negatively through each other just as easily as he can from the outside, and we need to be on guard against that. Now, that's not what happens in this account in Nehemiah, but I feel compelled to say it. Because I do believe the old saying that most of what will take us down doesn't come from without, it comes from within. You read the New Testament letters and most of them were dealing with church members that were not able to get along in a spiritual manner. When you're trying to do right, you find yourself with a target and everyone's targeting you. Anytime you're trying to do something for the Lord, watch out. As soon as you think things are looking up, you better look around because here comes trouble. And you say, well, I'm not really sure how true this principle is. I'm not really sure. Well, let me give you some Bible examples. All Abel was trying to do was bring the right kind of sacrifice. Was Abel trying to do the right thing? Absolutely. One of the first examples of people even on earth, all he was trying to do was bring the right sacrifice. All Noah was trying to do was just obey God and build an ark, build a boat. All Joseph was trying to do was just do right. Moses was just obeying God, following God through the wilderness, trying to lead these people to the promised land. I'm talking about these are all people that were attacked for their faith. They were attacked. They were targeted. David was just playing a harp. Jeremiah was just trying to preach God's word. Daniel was just trying to pray, folks. The apostles were just trying to obey God and preach his word and rescue sinners. That's all they were doing. I mean, Paul was trying to share the gospel with Gentiles. Jesus Christ came offering eternal life to the same sinners that crucified him. Now, you talk about somebody that came doing right. He did things the right way. He never once sinned. He came, and even Jesus Christ, God's Son, was put on a cross by the same sinners he was dying for. Listen, some of you, you're just trying to do something for God. You're just trying to raise your kids according to the Bible. But you've got family or your parents or brothers and sisters or extended family that think you're crazy. And they give you a hard time about how strict you are with your kids. You're just trying to get more involved at church, but your work schedule changed. And, and now you have to work some Sundays and you were just trying to do right. You were just trying to work, be where God wants you to be on Sundays and now everything's different. You were just trying to be a friend and show some concern and and now there's this offense because they took it wrong. It's happened to a lot of people. You were just trying to take the high road and now you're being accused of being a Pharisee. 
You were just trying to tell somebody about Jesus and they yelled at you. Get used to that. You're just trying to get clean, but the temptation seems to be stronger and stronger. Teenager, you're just trying to influence the other kids in the youth group for right, but now they're all making fun of you for it. Teenager at school, you're just trying to be a witness and you're just trying to do right for God and, you, and, and so you're not getting involved and people are making fun of you for that. You're just trying to, to start giving because you want to obey God and you know you're supposed to, but it seems like your bills are intensifying. You know, as soon as you start giving, then all these other things come and now you're tempted, do I still give? Because I have bills to pay. You just want to do right and everything goes wrong. You just want to please your king and everything looks up, but look around. Because as soon as you start trying to do something for God, the target is on your body. It's turned on and the enemy is firing away. Nehemiah's enemies were grieved exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. But listen, those around us, they're grieved exceedingly that you're just trying to raise your kids to do right. You're trying to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're grieved exceedingly that you're saying you can't work on Sundays. They're grieved, grieved exceedingly that you would dare give them some advice out of concern. They're grieved exceedingly that you witness to them. They're grieved exceedingly that you can't hang out like you used to because their lifestyle and your new lifestyle don't mesh. You have a desire to overcome sin. And they're grieved exceedingly and they're acting like it's the worst thing in the world that you're trying to do right and you're just trying to do right. Conviction enrages people. I'm here to say tonight, don't take it personally because the world hated our master. But know this, when you try to do right, there is guaranteed trouble ahead. And you could say it this way, when you try to do right, things are about to go wrong. I'm such an encouragement. And it's okay, it's okay. Because the servant's not greater than the master. And as soon as you start thinking life's so unfair, take a look at the cross. If they hated Jesus who did everything right, they're not going to give me a free pass. So I want you to remember a few things, and you can write these down. I think they'd be a help to us. When guaranteed trouble comes along, the first thing is... It's not strange to have trouble when you do right. It's not strange, and you need to tell yourself that. And when trouble comes along and things aren't easy, I want you to tell yourself this. It's not strange to have trouble when you do right, because First Peter, Peter wrote this in, first, in chapter 4, verse 12 through 14. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Can you just imagine what Peter's saying? He's saying, brethren, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial uh, which trieth you or which is to try you. And then he's like, As some strange thing is happening to you. He says, but rejoice in, so, in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resist, resteth upon you. 
On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. You start reading a passage like that and you realize it's really not that strange. As a matter of fact, it's something that is good for me. Because everybody who ever did anything for God faces resistance. That's just the nature of it. So don't think it's strange to have trouble when you do right. Second, it's better to deal with persecution than judgment. It's better to deal with persecution than judgment. Tell yourself that. 1 Peter 3, 17, he says, for it is better, listen, it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And while you're feeling sorry for yourself and we start to think, oh, I can't believe that God would, I'm doing right, I can't believe that God would have all these things happen to me when I'm just trying to do right. Tell yourself this, I'd rather deal with persecution than judgment. I'd rather face Satan and the world and every enemy who ever hated God than than one second facing the judgment of God. Peter makes it clear, it's better to deal with persecution than judgment. Third, it is through trouble that Christ is revealed through us. So it's not strange to have trouble when you do right. It's better to deal with persecution than judgment. And third, it is through trouble that Christ is revealed through us. We think that trouble is out to destroy us. But if you read 2 Corinthians 4, when Paul wrote this in chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, you realize it actually can be for our good. He said, we're troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. You realize that persecution and trouble and distress and perplexing and all of these other things, the despair, the things that come that we think it's so bad for us, it actually through that process, as we are broken, that Christ can be revealed in us. Be thankful that you can go through a tough time because it is through the tough times of being broken that Christ is revealed like a glow stick. You know, those glow sticks that the kids have, and they don't really do much, but when they break them, finally they start to shine. And it's not until you're broken that Christ can be manifested, according to that verse. It's not till you're broken that Christ can be revealed through you. We think trouble will destroy us, but God's grace allows it to, allows it to make us better. We think trouble is going to take us down, but God can turn our trouble into something that reveals Jesus Christ telling you that's worth it so what do you think helped nehemiah through his trouble i mean because he didn't have first peter he didn't have paul's writings what do you think helped him well this is another one we'll find out as we go but i happen to believe there's a foundational truth here in nehemiah 2 that helped him through all of it and it's at the end of verse 8 which we've already read nehemiah had done everything right and because of that he could say this the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me.
See, we know that he leaned on that truth. Look down in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 18. Just 10 verses later, he says, Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me. You know what Nehemiah was leaning on in his times of despair when things started to go wrong and the trouble showed up? He wasn't saying, God, I did this right. God, I, I, I'm just doing what you told me to do. I'm obeying you. I did this right. What are you doing? No, in his mind, he wasn't distressed. He wasn't perplexed. He wasn't broken and he wasn't trying to run away. He wasn't saying, I must have done something wrong. No, he says, I know I did all this right and God's good hand is upon me. Here's something else you can tell yourself in the middle of that trouble is that God's hand of blessing is on us when we do right. And you say, well, okay, well, we, we, that's pretty obvious. No, you need to tell yourself that. Because when it seems like everything's wrong and we're ready to pack it in, you need, we just need to be reminded. No, we have a promise that God's good hand is upon us when we do right. Does that mean we don't deal with trouble? Not at all. But when you do right, you have God's hand of blessing and you have his help. So when trouble comes, God's still in your corner. You're not out in the ring fighting alone. God is good when it's good and he's good when it's not. And as long as you've done the things the right way, you can trust the good hand of your God upon you. Just like Paul wrote, God can take what seems like heavy trouble and what will destroy us, and he can give us great grace not just to survive it, but to come out better on the other side. In the end, God can turn that trouble into something good. Romans eight twenty eight. And you probably know this verse. And most people do. Most people have heard it. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. See, what that verse is saying is that those are people that have done things right. They love God. They're called according to his purpose. They're trying to do the right thing. They're out there trying to get the right thing done. They're doing the right thing the right, the right way. They're waiting on God's timing. They're dependent on God. They're the right, they have the right heart for God's work. And yet things aren't going very well. And what do they tell themselves in the middle of trouble? Well, they tell themselves, I know that God is good. And I know that if I'm doing right, his good hand, whether or not it looks like it and whether or not it shows up in the ways that I think it should, I know that his hand is upon me. And I know that the good hand of our God is always on us when we do right. And it may not look like I want it to, and it may not end up like I would have chosen, but I do know he's good, and he's good when it's bad. When you do things the right way, God makes sure it ends well for you. You'll have opposition, you will face trouble, it will get hard. But we have to remember that the end of doing it right is better than the end of doing it wrong. Folks, we're going to face guaranteed trouble. But bigger than that is we have guaranteed help from the good hand of our God upon us. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.